Welcome to the Media Careers Podcast. My name is Carrie Wooten, and through this podcast, we're going to be speaking to people from across the media industry to learn about their education, their career paths, and their job roles. We'll discover what has motivated them and led them to undertake a career in the industry and what has kept them working within it. Where we can, we'll show as many links to organisations and individuals who can support and guide you through your journey into the media industry. We really hope you enjoy this series. The role of producer is perhaps one that we've heard of more than most and would associate with the film and TV industry. But what does that actually mean in reality and how do you get to become a producer? In today's episode, we meet Gareth Ellis Unwin, the founder of Bedlam Film Productions and who is also the producer of Academy Award winning films such as The King's Speech. Gareth made his way through the industry having studied at Ravensbourne College, which is now a university, and undertook roles such as production manager and first assistant director. More recently, Gareth was also the head of film and animation at Screen Skills. Screen Skills is the industry-led skills body and helps train people across film, television, animation and games and is a brilliant organisation to stay in touch with if you're considering a career in the industry. Gareth, welcome to the Media Careers Podcast. Hello, Kerry. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm all right speaking to you from uh, sunny Wales at the moment. It's supposed to be on my holidays, but here we are. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Not a problem. Before we before we joined, we were talking about kind of the aims of this podcast. And as I was saying, we want to try and let the young people know and parents and teachers who are listening to this about how to get into the industry, but also critically, all of the different breadth of job roles and, and what kind of person to undertakes those job roles. So should we start at the beginning? And uh, I'd love to know, what, what were you like as a young person? What were you like as a child? Did you... <laughs> <laughs> you, you, should, you should probably ask others uh, for an honest response to that. But, I mean, <laughs> I always I always had a passion in terms of storytelling and I was a keen um, viewer of films. I mean, my era of growing up was sort of Spielberg in a, at his very start of his career. And so I, you know, grew up on, on films like E.T. and Jaws and, and films like that. And I always remember the sort of key moment which I've I've shared previously, where I really got sort of inspired by film was um, we went to uh, I grew up in Slough, grew up on an estate in in Slough, and um, the local local cinema um, was showing E.T. and me, my sister, and my dad went to go and watch it. And to paint a picture, my dad's sort of like a bigger, roughy, tufty version of me. He's about a foot taller, about two foot wider, plays a, a lot of high level rugby. And um, there was this weird noise coming from just next to me, the seat next to me, when we we're about two thirds of the way through the film. And I was like, what's that? I didn't even know what it is. And I turned to my side and my dad was crying. And this was probably the first time I ever saw my dad shed a tear, you know. And I was just like, wow, you've got this guy that, you know, it's very manly man in my eyes, you know, I really did idolise my dad. And, you know, he's absolutely crying his eyes out over this sort of silver skinned little rubber puppet that's got Paulie in this in this film. And so the sort of the power of cinema sort of found me at, at that age. And I was then inspired to, to try and just find some opportunities, didn't know anything about the industry some might say I still don't, Um, but wanted to find a pathway in. And I had the benefit of living not too far from from Pinewood Studios and was able to secure a Saturday job over there, basically sweeping the floors and emptying the bins. 
Um, and I was sort of very excited about this. And that was when you could have a Saturday job at the age of 14. And I sort of carried back this, this information to my careers advisor at school and said, oh, I'm really excited. You know, I've got this Saturday job at Pinewood Studios and I want to think about maybe making films for a living because I think that would be really exciting. Um, and she looked me dead in the eye and just said, but you're not intelligent enough. Um, and she suggested that I should get ready to go and work for Mars Confectionery because they were the big lo local employer. Um, a lot of the, the children from school that I went to, uh, that didn't go to university, went to work on the Slough Trading Estate. So quite early on, my sort of ambitions were nearly snuffed out by, by this careers advisor. So this is why this becomes a real sort of passion of mine in my later years, having now enjoyed a full and some would regard successful career that it's really important that we're opening up those pathways and we are not extinguishing those those flames of ambition in younger people or indeed anyone that wants to come across and join the industry you know we we focus i think sometimes too much on the young and you know there are others that would be looking for a for a career change and so it's been a big big passion of mine to make sure that we are opening up the industry and I'm pleased to say that the story of my old careers teacher does end quite well because 23 years later, she did invite me back to do a talk at the school <laughs> with my Oscar and the not small fact that I just produced the um, highest grossing British independent film of all time. So, uh, yeah, anyway, that was good. That was a lovely little talk that we got to got to do to that school. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's been a it's been a passion of of mine throughout. But, yeah, the, um, the pathways in are sometimes confusing. There's just so much opportunity in a variety of roles that you know, take a different pathway in, you know, uh, and we'll maybe talk about the different options in terms of going straight to work and degree and non-degree learning. Um, but yeah, my my sort of education um, in terms of the career really started um, a little bit later. So I'd, I'd left school early. Um, so I what age did you leave school then? So you've got this so job I, at 14. Yeah, so you've got this job at 14. So then what, what age did you leave school then? So I, I started A-levels, but I didn't get on with them particularly well. I, I, I've never been particularly academic. I'm more practical. And, you know, when I can get my hands on something like equipment or feel like it's a bit more of a sort of physical activity. I was big, big into my sports when I was a younger man. So played county level rugby and um, ice hockey for the local team and stuff and thought that actually sports was going to be my my calling and that the film passion would just be a, a sideline, but a combination of two things that happened in my late teens. Um, one, I, I got quite a bad injury playing ice hockey, which meant that a professional career was going to have to stop. Um, but second to that, um, I had had opportunity to take my sister down for her A-level interviews. The family were relocating to, to Dorset. Um, and the thinking at the time was that I would stay behind, I was going to go to work and that Judith, my sister, and my mum and dad would move to Dorset and start forging a new life down there. But they needed someone to go and take her to her A-level interview. So I didn't have work that day. So drove down to Weymouth um, and sat in the car whilst Judith was having her A-level interviews. Um, and I saw this group of people running around with cameras and it was sort of this, this really shows how old I am. Um, but it was like a big umatic recorder, which is about the size of a suitcase that you take to Spain on your holidays, connected to a, a big camera that looked like it was about the weight of the person operating it, you know, and someone had a, a boom mic that were trailing them around. I was like, what are this lot up to? So, you know, being quite outgoing, I sort of decided, well, silly me sitting in the car and listening to the radio, I'll go and have a chat with them anyway. 
um, cut a very long story short, I got introduced to the course leader and the course leader said, you're obviously passionate about storytelling. Have you thought about carrying on your education? And I sort of explained the story about the careers teacher and explained the story about the fact that I wasn't very good academically. And he asked me if I'd considered a BTEC. And at the time, I didn't know much about BTECs, you know, but they, um, they're they a lot more practical. They're less exam based, you know, and it's more about getting your hands on the equipment and understanding the methodology rather than being able to discuss theory. So we had this really interesting drive back from Weymouth. Not only did my sister absolutely ace her exams and sorry, her interviews, which you always seek to do, but we were going to have to persuade mum and dad to let me go down and do a two year BTEC. Now, bear in mind, education hadn't really been for me. I wasn't the easiest young man to live around. I, I, I had anger issues and all sorts at the time. So I think mum and dad were quite looking forward to getting shot of me, but they were kind enough to sort of recognise that I'd been genuinely inspired by this guy, Paul Catis. Paul was the head of school at Weymouth. Weymouth was an FE college. And I signed up to do a national diploma, a BTEC national diploma in media. And it was cross cross genre cross sector so there was a bit of print journalism there was a bit of radio journalism um there was making short films there was doing animations but it was all centered around actually getting to tell stories and actually craft stories and content um and it it really lit a fire inside me you know i i i without sounding too grand i i did really well for the first time ever, I was, I was bringing home distinctions and A grades rather than notes from the headmaster. Um, so mum and dad were suitably encouraged that I was on a, a good trajectory. Um, and I was invited um, to apply for the uh, institution you referenced in, in the intro, which is obviously how we know each other through. Um, I was invited to apply to Ravensbourne. And at the time, gosh, this was so far removed from anything that I thought was achievable for me. Um, Ravensbourne at the time had an amazing reputation. It was one of the top three schools for media in the UK. There was the National, there was the London Film School, and there was Ravensbourne. And Ravensbourne had a bit more of a sort of TV tilt to it. The other schools were more film focused. Um, and it had this sort of historic, you know, it had this aura of of, of being an exceptional place to go and learn. And apparently no one got in first time of asking. You always had to apply multiple times. It was almost as if that was a, a rite of passage. Um, well, blow me down if I didn't apply and actually get in on the first time of asking. Um, and it, it was true. There was a lot of other people on that course that had applied a few times. And so that was a higher national diploma in programme operations. Again, very practically based. It was about using the equipment, understanding the methodology rather than the theory. Um, it was less about watching Battleship Potemkin 15 times and uh, Jean de Florette than it was picking up a camera and going and shooting a news item. So it was it was really great and um, met my long-standing best friend and, and partner in, in the Bedlam family of companies. Um, Simon and so forged relationships whilst I was at Ravensbourne that are still lent into um, these days you know and it's what I graduated in 95 so we're 28 years on and I'm still you know in touch with the alumni and that's something I encourage a lot of younger people they they get so caught up on having a network and tapping into a network and I've always said that you know they start from the moment 
you decide to play an active role or want to play an active role in the industry. You know, I go and do outreach in schools and say, well, look, the 10 of you that are in the film club that are turning up at lunch times to watch movies, that's a network. You know, the group of friends that you have on social media where you're sharing, you know, TikTok videos and other things where you're creating content. Again, that's another network, you know. So they are there are access points. But yeah, so did the HND at Ravensbourne, um, graduated. Sorry, did you know at the point, when you were at Ravensbourne, did you know at that point what kind of role that you wanted to do? Well, you'd obviously like had like tasters across the media industry, but did you, had you got in your head or actually, I'm quite good at this and producing's where I'm, I'm headed for, or was it just like, oh, I still just, I know I just want to be in the industry. Had you kind of filtered it down at any point by that? By that yeah, no, it, it got some definition, but weirdly, and this is often the case, in my career story today, it's not it's not a sequence of deliberate choices. It's actually being smart and reactive to what is put in front of you. So, for example, you know, I did not go into Ravensbourne thinking I wanted to be a producer. But whilst at Ravensbourne, I realised I'm pretty good with people. I'm quite good at motivating people, quite good at inspiring people. I think that comes from the sort of sports background, you know, having to get a team to to to, to go with you towards a win. Um, but the weird thing with Ravensbourne was that you had within the sort of the, the the year group I was, which was probably about 100 across all the different courses, everyone t- wanted to be experts in their field. So they wanted to be the best lighting camera person. They wanted to best, be the best sound recorder. They wanted to be the best editor. They wanted to be. So you had these people that were very technically and creatively gifted, but no one wanted to come up with the ideas. So Simon and I were in this sort of vacuum of going, well, we've got 98 brilliant people around us. But they need stuff to work on. And there was stuff that was syllabus based. And, you know, obviously the 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 college, as it was then, it's now a university, you know, had things that were on the syllabus for us to study. But that wasn't really getting people going. You know, Simon and I going, let's go and do a new let's go and do a news piece on the local football club that's just reopened a stadium and we'll drag a few people down there. You know, Simon went and took a group of them off up to Tibet to go and do a documentary out there. Simon and I wrote a um, multi-episodic soap that was based within the college that we shot six episodes of. So not by decision, but by circumstance, I realised that I love telling stories and I'm very good at sort of bringing people together and motivating them behind a, a project. So I actually came out of Ravensbourne a little bit lost. To, to, to tell you the truth. And um, that wasn't the fault of the university, or sorry, the college as was. And that's a feeling you're going to, you know, in the screen sector, as I'm sure, Carrie, you felt it in different ways and I felt it in different ways. Sometimes there's a little bit of a sort of imposter syndrome. You wonder whether you're suitable and qualified to do the jobs we get to do. But also there's a moment of self-doubt and in the absence of a clear decision, we're sort of trying to to do the best we, we, we can do. So that feeling of being a bit lost and uncertain is quite, quite common. And particularly within the sort of first, say, three years after graduation, we recognise a lot of the graduates that I've been working with over the years. There's that sort of three years of, right, I've come out, I've got my degree, I've done my studying, but I'm just finding it a bit tricky to find my stride, get into the industry, continue to develop those networks, be in regular work. And obviously with such a, significant part of our labor force being freelance you know not working equals not earning and not earning equals debts racking up you know um and that is a an ongoing concern and that that's been the same for for the 30 odd years i've been doing it um but came out of ravensbourne with a clear sense that okay if i'm going to be in the creative sector i'm definitely going to strive and strive to thrive 
being around people, being a, a sort of coordinator of people. So it was um, my first couple of jobs were sort of generic runner jobs. So I worked at a company called QDOS, which everyone now knows for their big shows like Spooks and MII. At the time, they were making fishing programs, and I'd go out and and sort of be baiting fish and stuff for them as a runner. Um, I did a bit of post-production running where I worked at a company called Cal, who are no longer around, but in Soho, basically taking tapes. But, you know, we didn't send stuff over the internet back then. You'd literally have d1 d3 tapes that would have to be run around and that's why runners are called runners is typically they'd be running something from one post-production house to another post-production house um so i did that for for a little while and then went back to qdos because one of the production managers happened to like how i i i did what i did um and got chance to work on a comedy commission that they had, which um two comedians that are not as well known now but will probably mean more to the parents of the audience of this group than necessarily <laughs> anyone else, which was Hale and Pace. You know, Hale and Pace were, were in the 90s. They were a comedy duo and they got commissioned by ITV to do a thing called April Fool's Day. And it was a great thing to work on. It was a one-off special. It was about two warring neighbours that on April Fool's Day always try to outdo each other with pranks. So you imagine it starts off low and builds and builds and builds and builds. So it was a lot of stunt work. It was a lot of comedy gags at the time there was people that were appearing in in the comedy show that would go on and be amazing names that we now recognize like bill bailey and joe brand and others so it was just an amazing environment and the 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 team that i got exposed to um their work was the assistant director's department so having not done a lot of scripted content before i just didn't know what an ad was you know and, and I can, what is an ad then gareth what is so the assistant right so the assistant director's department is the glue that keeps everything together on set and the day running well so where the production department will put together the team and get all of the forward planning in place and work the budgets from the moment that you actually start the filming or just before the filming the assistant directors uh, come on board and they will basically be driving the show from a, a sort of organizational perspective they interlink into all of the other key departments like locations production camera lighting sound but they're the sort of the glue they're, they're the ones that generate the production paperwork like the call sheet which is your sort of orders for the next day the advanced schedule and there are sort of different ranks of AD. Um, the head of department is actually technically the director, um, although the ADs are often seen as a distinct department on their own. And you have a first AD, a second AD, sometimes a second second, a third AD, and then various runners. And I'll just quickly talk you through their different responsibilities. So going from, from the sort of more junior roles up. So on any production, you're likely to have three or four set PAs, so set production assistants or runners. They are pretty much there to do all of the jobs that aren't covered by anyone else from either a technical or a craft perspective. So, you know, that could be um, finding, and, finding and getting something for, for a cast member, or it could be standing at the perimeter of a location with the locations team helping control traffic. You know, they're generally the, the hands and feet of the, the production. So the role that then looks after that group of, of, of junior runners is typically the third assistant director. So the third assistant director, they are the, the third in seniority within the AD team. And the third AD will run the runners, will be the point person on set for the cast in terms of them coming to and being dispatched from set. They will be the person that helps the first AD in terms of vocalising what's going on on set. 
they'll be calling for quiet during takes. There'll be um, a sort of uh, still a junior member of the team, but someone that's helping the first AD control the set. So there is a lot of activity that happens offset that makes sure that the set can run effectively. And that is typically on the day managed by the second assistant director or the second second assistant, if it's a bigger production. And they're doing all the things like making sure that the cast have arrived and are going through makeup and, and, and costume, making sure that locations are aware of where the film crew are within the day and are opening up the next locations and getting things prepped. They'll be speaking with the art department, making sure that they understand the schedule and they know what's coming in a few days or a few weeks time. And the second AD working with the production coordinator will generate the call sheet. And the call sheet is the sort of the one document that controls all. Um, and then above the second AD and the second second AD is the first assistant director. And the first assistant director is basically the, the mouthpiece of the director. The director, if they are in the right creative zone, should just be worrying about performance and working with the camera team about how something's shot and with working with the production design team about how something looks. You know, you want to keep your director laser focused on best performance and shot in the very best way with all the best material. So to do that, um, you need someone that's bossing the set. The set is typically, you know, on one of my productions, somewhere between 100 and 120 people. On the bigger productions could be anything up to a couple of thousand. In fact, I first AD'd projects that literally had two and a half, three thousand people on set. And the director is not going to be managing those because they're worrying about story in the craft. So the first AD is the is the more vocal member of the, the management crew that is basically telling people what to do, what's coming next, calling for quiet, helping keep on schedule and, and all of those things. And I saw in this department just an ability to work across all the different other departments you'd have contact with camera lighting sound props cast etc um you had to be you know good at motivating people good at good communicator etc and so i found my way into the ad department um and that then led on to me working my way up the ranks so started as a runner moved up to being a third ad went from being a third to a second didn't hugely love seconding it's sort of it's offset it's slightly away from um some of the sort of the buzz of the floor so decided that I wouldn't sort of languish as a as a second AD and started firsting at the age of 25 so that was quite quick from leaving Ravensbourne that kind of from runner to to 30 yeah yeah well I I sort of did that thing which you're starting to actually say it was a bit rare at the time back 25 plus years ago there was clearer distinction between working in film and working in television and those that worked in film tend to work at a certain budget level and had their networks and contacts and work there and those working in television had a different set of networks a different set of people um, and whilst there were a lot of similarities in terms of the production process the missioning i.e the point at which a project starts and then the subsequent exploitation and transmission were, were at that point very, very different between film and TV. So a film would go into cinemas, go through its various sort of windowing of, of, of presentation and would find itself onto TV four years after the film was released. Um, this is before the advent of streamers, of course. And TV was a very different model, you know. So it tended to be that there was more distinction with those that worked on film and those that worked on TV. But I skipped between the two because I... I had as much fun going and working on a big feature film as I did going and doing a drama reconstruction for the BBC or going and shooting a corporate video or doing something else. So 
I moved between the, the various subsectors quite freely. And that's now something that's much more common. So, for example, um, people that are working on high end television projects, you know, the likes of a Peaky Blinders or something like that, will have access to the same level of crew, same level of cast, likely similar budget to big, big films. You know, the 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 distinction has has sort of reduced quite, quite dramatically. But back then it was it was clearer. Um, and how I got my sort of promotions were. I sort of, you know, I worked on lower budget things. I, I sort of was happy to sort of work on friends projects. I built a network of people that were engaging me as a as a first AD. Um, and I had a great 13 years. You know, I got to meet my now wife through being an AD. I got to travel the world. There's only two continents I've never shot in, which is Australia and Antarctica. And I plan on fixing one of those quite soon. Um, and it was great. It was a brilliant life, you know. Were you, work freelancing? You, were, you, were, sorry, you were freelancing at that point. Yeah, you yeah. yeah. So, one so I was freelance at that point. So for those that, that aren't aware, a, a big part of the creative sector is based on what we call freelance work. And freelance means basically you're, you're, you're your own boss. So you will either incorporate as a company or as a sole trader. You'll be responsible for your own taxation. You'll be responsible for your own sort of, you know, pension and those other things. But ultimately, you working is dependent on you finding your work through a network of, of clients. So reputation becomes really important. Professionalism becomes really important. Ability, obviously. Um, but they reckon something like 65% of the um, of the TV and film workforce are on some are on a freelance contract. Um, there's been a slight move towards more PAYE roles, but it's it's still 65% of the labor force is is freelance. Um, yeah, and I had a, a a great 13 years. I wrapped up, you know, I think somewhere near 20 plus credits, worked across TV and film. Biggest project I did was in Kazakhstan, and that had two and a half thousand extras on every day and 500 crew and, you know, little little Gareth from Slough in the middle of it all bossing it. Um, <laughs> you know, worked in the Bahamas with Billy Zane and Kelly Brook, which was entertaining, you know, a lot of work in the States, a lot of work in, in Europe. Um, and the fascination of being an AD through that period of time and working internationally was that every jurisdiction, every different country has its slightly unique way of working. I mean, they sort of a in three main pots, you have the sort of UK US way of working. Uh, you have the sort of European way of working and then you have everyone else. Um, and, you know, all of them have benefits and pitfalls, you know, there was, but it was amazing being able to sort of go into a country as someone that wasn't there just as a tourist, someone that was there to work and you get to see a different part of the country, you get to see the working life of the people that are from there. Um, yeah. And had a, a, a really enjoyable time as a first AD, but found myself sort of wanting that, that, that next challenge. And I'd got to a point where, um, so once you hit a certain level of productions, um, there are a number of things that need to be in place to protect the money. Um, so when you're working on a feature film that has a budget of, I don't know, let's say north of $5 million, chances are that money's been raised by a variety of means. And what happens to protect everyone's investment in that is there is a thing called a completion bond. And the completion bond 
they sort of police the process. So they get the shooting reports, they get the copies of the bank statements. They basically just verify that everything is on budget and everything is on schedule. Um, and they have some quite extensive powers. So if, for example, a film is going dramatically over budget, they can step in and sack the producer. If there is a film that's going dramatically over schedule and it's because the director is taking too much time and doing too many shots, then they can sack the director. They can actually, in certain circumstances, step in and sack cast. So if you have a particularly problematic actor um, that's causing issues and running late and all the rest of it, it's the bond that would step in and have a very stern conversation with them because no one wants to be unbondable because that then uh, as reputational loss in the industry would be horrific. So I, I got to a point where I was the sort of the go-to person for one of these bonding companies where I was still doing a lot of work where I was the first AD from the very starting point but was starting to move more into a production exec role where if there was a project that was in crisis before the bond go in and take over, which they can do, they would send me in and I would sort of, by working together, try and get things into better order. And sometimes you do that with a carrot and you sort of say to people, look, we can keep this show on the road, we can keep it on the rails, but we're going to have to make some changes, some accommodations, and wouldn't it all be for the betterment of the film? You know, so you try and sort of inspire and tease people to, to perform better or you go in with a very very big stick which is look, I'm really sorry if you don't find a solution with me within a week then you're going to be out you know and I had some of those awkward candid conversations um, at times but that got really tiring you know three and a half years of solving everyone else's problems and pretty much always going into projects that were in crisis where you know people were very anxious people were very upset you know there's one show that I was part of where literally every Friday night on wrap, people were going back to their hotel rooms to pack their bags because they thought that the money had run out. And to do that sort of virtually every Friday night whilst you're abroad thinking, am I going to be coming to work on Monday was was quite harrowing. Um, and it was at that point I decided that, you know, if I'm going to work this hard in this sort of way, then I'd rather be doing it on stories that I want to see in the world rather than necessarily someone else's. And that was then the the sort of moment that I realized that you know highly likely that the first AD career was going to be winding down and I'd be looking for something that had a bit more seniority or impact um and I sort of I have a great amount of respect for directors but I have directed a few bits and pieces but that wasn't my calling um and so you know started to seriously consider consider producing so that's the point that you established Bedlam. Yeah, two thousand and six. So we established. Yeah, we established Bedlam. It's funny. Again, comes out of circumstance rather than design. Yeah. And I just want to encourage anyone that's listening. This is that. Yes, have a plan. Have three plans. Have ten plans. But also have the plan which is the one that is subject to change and is flexible and agile because the industry is and it expects you to be alongside it. Um, so we had sort of three or four converging things that were happening one simon had built a very good career as a documentary director he'd started off as a sound recorder then a, a documentary director and he was now starting to get spoken to about commissions so um he was a gun for hire documentary director but looking to start to tell his own stories but wanted to tell them through his own um company so there was that that was happening um i was starting to look for new opportunities alongside the first thing um but had a long-running experience of working in drama and scripted content um because of some of the shows that i'd worked on 
and Simon had worked on, we were getting invited to pitch in for little small corporate jobs. Um, and so we had a couple of gigs where it was like, well, Simon's billing for his time and I'm billing for my time. But if we had it all under one banner, then we could, you know, put the insurances together. We could put everything else and sort of it started to make sense to actually have an umbrella company that we would both both work in the name of. So look, Gareth, we can't we can't do this podcast without mentioning the King's Speech. Like it's yep. a significant moment in your in your career. What what was the process of getting getting the King's Speech project and and what was it like producing producing that film? Sure. Well, I, I'll give you the you could almost dedicate a whole podcast to the stories yeah. around the King's Speech. You know, it's uh, it's an amazing period of time, both for Simon and I, our friends and family, the British film industry at large you know it was it was really significant and so after after exam Simon and I had um, said that we were we would look out for other um, opportunities and at the time the BBC were running a drama a sort of play for today type um, strand and they were looking for contained stories with limited locations limited cast and for you know emergent directors so we originally were setting the kings we we were setting up a project for simon to direct and um we put a call out to the various lit agents that we knew and other people that we were connected with and just said look we're looking for a one-off story that's got limited locations limited cast could you let me know what you've what you've got and we got tons of emails that came in but one email came in from a brilliant lady called joan lane and she had sent five project ideas to us and each of the top four were really eloquently written log lines properly thought out scripts were in place ready to go but the last one like the sort of the little orphan at the end of the list was the king's speech and she just said you might like it and what was sent to us was the unproduced stage play so at that time david seidler the writer had written a stage play that was just the therapy sessions. So only for those that have seen the film, the sequences between Jeffrey Rush and Colin Firth that happened behind closed doors within the therapy sessions, the speech therapy sessions, were it. That was it. So we liked it. It, it sort of had, it had something about it. There was some real magic in there. Got talking to Joan. Joan introduced us to David. David was based in LA, but was coming through London. So we got to meet him and at the, that point, we were pitching the idea of Simon directing it based on the unproduced stage play and that that would go to the BBC as part of this new strand. So we did a deal with um, a production company in the UK. I won't mention them. Um, and for a year, we were developing the, the project with them. And then suddenly the BBC decided that they weren't going to progress with that strand. So we went from potentially our first commission in TV with a broadcaster and a big production company behind us, Simon directing, me producing, fell flat. Oh. I actually remember taking the call from the senior executive from this particular production company. I sat outside Walton-upon-Thames train station and he basically dropped us. He just said, it's, it's done. We're not going to renew the option. Best of luck with it. Again, I won't mention either their, their name or the company name. And I sat there and I cried for five minutes, sat there in the car and then had to steal myself because I needed to phone Simon and let him know what had happened. I then needed to, to phone David and explain to him what had happened. Um, and this was pre-Zoom, pre-Teams, pre, this is a proper old-fashioned phone call. So for the first five minutes, I just got anger from David. He was very upset and disappointed. Um but we had forged a really close relationship through the development. So I said, look, 
give me a year, give Simon and I a year. We think there's something magical in this. We think there's a great opportunity, but given recent events, we're going to need some time to sort of try and put it together. Um, and David, do you think there's a version of this, which is maybe slightly bigger, that's more than just the therapy sequences? Well, that then turned into the fact that he had written an, a very different version but under advisement from his manager at the time and under advisement from his partners and friends at the time, he'd written it smaller and smaller and smaller. So it started off with this big theatrical, um, full of pomp, full of circumstance, you know, really massive show. But because he'd listened to people saying, oh, make it smaller, make it smaller, make it smaller, make it smaller, it became just the stage play. So when Simon and I started developing it with David. It was like Russian dolls in reverse. It just grew and grew and grew and grew. The script that we got to, we then put on as a, a rehearsed reading at the Pleasance Theatre. That went really, really well. Um, this is a slightly old story now, but Tom Hooper's mum was in the audience to that rehearsed reading. Apparently she left the auditorium and told Tom that that was going to be his next film. As soon as we had Tom, Tom was on the rise Um with the, the work he had done on John Adams. And at the time we were developing it as a potential UK, Australia co-production because we were going to see more of Jeffrey Rush's character's life before he came to the UK. And so started to look for potential co-producers um, that had a, a, a foothold in Australia and that led us to Seesaw. You know, and the work that Ian and Emil did on the King's speech and getting it set up was astonishing you know we were very much a, a, a team of four but their networks their contacts sat in a very different place from mine so I knew crew I knew equipment I knew budgets I knew how to run the mechanics of the shoot but from a commercial perspective I'd never put together a film that was a multi-million dollar movie so I think the learning point here is that you you really have to be not precious about your role within a project if the project is going to become better and be improved by collaboration, by co-production, then absolutely you have to be open to that. I've seen too many projects die on the vine because people can't get over themselves and, you know, can't reach out for help. So Ian and Emil uh, joined us. It became a co-production. Funnily enough, the, the Australia component to the shoot fell away. Um, but Emil knew Jeffrey, so there was a connection there. We were doing sort of really good work in the UK. Tom was on the rise. He'd just done a single man and damn United. So he was attracting a lot of attention. Um, casting wise, it was um, a bit of a mad scramble. I mean, interesting enough that, you know, as you know, at the moment, there's the WGA strike, the Writers Guild of America strike that's on at the moment. Well, the last time they struck was 2008, which was when we were making the King's Speech. And some of the challenges around working under strike conditions are present today now as they were 2008 luckily in 2008 the screen actors guild hadn't come out so that was a little bit uh, easier passage um but yeah we we started to put the film together we had some real challenges um there was a big new york bank called learman's who were one of the senior film investors in the independent space and they'd gone under so there wasn't a lot of available funding in the sort of financing ecosystem. Um, we struggled to get one of the public service broadcasters on board. So it wasn't made with the BBC. It wasn't made with Film 4, you know, which was pretty peculiar at the time. Um, and the last crisis we faced before we were greenlit as a movie was with um, there'd been a deal negotiated with the Weinstein company. 
Um, but everyone knew the Weinstein company to be at the time cash deficient. They, they were near bankruptcy. And we were all in Cannes the year that Inglorious Bastards was released. And we knew if it wasn't well received, then that could be the death knell for the deal with the Weinstein company on the King's Speech because they, they were having issues around you know, their monetization of content. Um, but Inglorious Bastards was an absolute runaway hit. It made them a load of money. Suddenly they were back in the independent space and um, able to, to support us. And so we, yeah, we we pieced together the, the the financing. We went into production in October of 2008. We shot over the Christmas break. Um, we wrapped on around the end of January. Again, um, it's funny because people sort of say, at the time, did you think you had a hit on your hands? And it was like, well, I was more worried about weather cover. I was more worried about overtime with the electricians. I was more worried about the mechanics of the shoot than suddenly sitting there thinking, woo, you know, we've got the 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 best thing since sliced bread. Um, but yeah, so we got through the production process that went well, the cast were lovely. The crew really got behind the project. Um, the first cut was turned in and it was three and a half hours long, which was a bit of a panic. So there was plenty of work to be, be done on that. Um, but yeah, the, the film took its international. So we did a sneak preview at Telluride Film Festival. We then went to Toronto Film Festival where it had its official first international screening um and it was starting to get a groundswell of support people were talking kindly about the project and that this was one of the best scripts that had been made recently but i always had this nagging doubt at the back of my mind that it hadn't been presented for a big audience yet it, we'd seen it in screenings we'd done test screenings but we hadn't put it up in front of a load of people and rosie and i were in toronto for its international premiere and i remember watching the film um, it was really lovely at the start. Of, so the cast and crew were brought on before the film played. It happened to be Colin's 50th birthday and the whole audience sang him happy birthday, which was really sweet. We go off and we watch the film and there's this really funny moment as the, you become very familiar with films that you've made. You know, by the time you're presenting it to a public audience, you've seen it probably 80, 90 times. And so you become a bit sanitized about sort of some of the, the bits within it. You know, the humor doesn't land as clearly, the drama doesn't land as, as much as when you watch it for the first time. And I'm a great people watcher when I'm in a public screening like that. And you can just see from watching people's backs and backs of heads and shoulders and stuff, if they're fidgety in their seats, then they're not engaged. If they're looking at their phones, God forbid, you know, they're not engaged, but there was literally the Roy Thompson Hall at, at Toronto is two and a half thousand people, which is a big cinema audience. It's like screen one left square. And every head was forward looking forward to the screen and wrapped for two hours. You know, there wasn't any coughs. There wasn't any sniffles. You could almost hear a pin drop at the times that there wasn't laughter. And there's this, I'm getting goosebumps now because I'm remembering this moment, but there's a moment where the last end title come, comes up, the cards come up after the speech and there was this period of bizarre quietness in the auditorium. And it's a really, it's a really moving thing to be around two and a half thousand people being that quiet. And of course, where did my mind go? I was like, oh God, they hate it. They hate it. They hate it with a passion. It's awful. I'll never work again. I'm out there. And about what felt like an eternity it was probably about 10 nanoseconds there was suddenly this noise in the room that was like this sort of tsunami wave and it was applause and it wasn't just applause. It was whoops. And then suddenly everyone's up on their feet and there was a six and a half, seven minute standing ovation, you know, and we just blew us away. And then, 
then that's when the the the, the roller coaster really got underway. We were now you know, one of the films to beat for the Oscars. We were one of the films to beat for the BAFTAs. You know, we were obviously a strong contender in the UK for BAFTA. So 14 nominations and um, eight wins. We were now lobbying and campaigning for the Oscars, et cetera, et cetera. You know, up until just last year. So it's taken that long. Um, the only we we had the standing record for the most amount of Oscar nominations until uh, All Quiet on the Western Front equaled it last year. So twelve Oscar nominations, uh, and that led on to you know the big win. So we won four Oscars on the night, including the Best Picture, um, which was presented to me by Steven Spielberg. So talk about circles of completeness, you know, having inspired me to want to make films at the age of fourteen with ET. You know, many years later, I'm now picking up my Best Picture Oscar from from Steel Spielberg, and actually spending more talk about more time talking about his daughter's ambition to come into the film industry and how she was going to get her start. And I was like, "Wow, wow! If there's one kid that's got a leg up getting into the industry, I I think it's your well, daughter." Good chance, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was your journey, Gareth, from from that initial idea that was just about the therapy sessions that then got lost because of the BBC dropping its slate. And then, yeah, what an extraordinary process to go yeah. through over those few years and the kind of craziness around what well, the BAFTAs and Oscars must have been as well. It must have been a complete whirlwind of yeah. of, of happiness and joy as well. And for the and going back to what you said at the beginning about the impact, wanting to create stories that had impact. Yeah. yeah. Well one of my one of one of my favorite sort of two mini anecdotes, and I know that we're we're long on time at the moment, but two of my favorite anecdotes that come out of the King speech were so one, um if you haven't seen it, you've got to look up the clip from Educating Yorkshire. So Educating Yorkshire, which was a, a reality TV show uh, focusing on a school that was in special measures up in Yorkshire, um, has a young British Asian kid who suffers from a terrible stammer. And it just so happened that his English teacher had been to see the King's speech at the weekend before. And he tries the technique where he puts the headphones on and plays some music and gets the student to read out um, some, some dialogue. Um, and it had a real positive effect on him being able to manage his stammer. And this kid then goes on to actually give the closing address at the last end of term assembly where you've got all of the kids rooting for him. It's it's probably one of the most powerful bits of television I've ever seen. It's gorgeous. Um, his name was Mushraf. I got to meet him and his dad. We went up with a signed photo, a signed poster and stuff, you know, and he has now gone on to be a speech therapist in his own life. You know, he's now a, a man, you know, a man in his mid 20s. And you sort of think, wow, that's just, you know, that's just a, a, an amazing, you know, an amazing uh, anecdote that came out of it. And I still I still get emails now, you know, 13 years on from people that that have challenges around speech issues and and stuff where they say yeah my mum and dad have just shown me the king's speech and it's really helped you know you sort of go well that's the the power of cinema the power of story, and the power of storytelling right and the impact yeah. that it has to change lives and change lives for the better and yeah that, i mean that's yeah extraordinary so tell me Gareth, what what is the role of a producer so we've talked about first aid being and the kind of department there but what what exactly is the producer role then? So I found the best way of describing what a producer does 
um, is to liken it to a, a property developer. And I'm now going to talk about producer, but within the commercial environment. So we're not talking about a producer that's bringing together a bunch of mates to go out and shoot something at the weekend. We're talking about someone raising a lot of money to spend a lot of money to hopefully make a lot of money on a piece of film content. So a producer is like a property developer. A property developer will see a parcel of land. They'll know what the purchase price of that piece of land will be. They will have a sense of they can build a hospital on it. They can build some office blocks on it. They can build a load of homes on it. And a producer will know that there'll be different costs associated with the production of those things, what it's going to cost to make a hospital, what it's going to cost to make a load of flats, what it's going to cost to make a, a load of houses. And they also then have to know, well, when that is built, what is the likely market value of that hospital, of those factories, of those houses, of those flats, when I try and sell it three years after I've made it, okay? I'm exactly the same as a property developer, but my property is intellectual property. So I see an idea or a script, and I know what it's going to cost me to get the rights to turn that into a TV show or a film or a game. Mm -hmm. I will have a fair sense of whether it is best suited to being a film, a TV show, a game, or even an immersive experience, you know, I will go, okay, well, there's four or five things I can do with this. I will know that there'll be different costs of production and specialisms needed, depending on which way I'm going to go with any of those. And the way I'm going to raise the money is because it will, at the point of completion, have a market value. And I have to have a reasonable sense of what the market value is. So before a project comes into being, I found I found the IP, I found the intellectual property. I've acquired the rights to turn it into a film, TV, game or other. I know the associated costs of making it into film, TV, game or other. And I will have assessed and worked out what the likely market value is at the end of that process. And the balancing act that I'm trying to hit is that the costs of production are broadly equivalent to or greater than the likely market value at the end of the process. Because no one wants to lend a load of money or invest a load of money into a film that they don't feel is going to at least get its money back. Um, so once I've done that, that's that's when we get to what they call green light. Okay, So green light is when you have sufficient funding in place, ready to go and do the enterprise of making the piece of content. From that point onwards, I am the senior party that makes sure that the production process happens. It happens on time. It happens on budget. Um, I'm typically the person that directly hires the director. I'm pretty much the person that will, with the director, choose the cast. And the combination of director and cast gives us our real market value. So I'm also then responsible of working with the sales agent to go out and sell the film. So I see the production process through all the way up until delivery. So delivery is when the film is finished and it's ready to go out to either streamers or go into the theatres or whatever. And from that point onwards, my role then pivots to monitoring the performance of that film for the rest of its life. So, for example, I'm still looking at collection statements from the King's Speech, which we made in 2008. Mm -hmm. So the relationship that producer has with that content that they found is lifelong. You know, I will on a hit like King's Speech, it it will continue to make money forevermore. You know, there will always be a residual value because that, you know, it's shown on TV, it's shown on streamers, it's sold through iTunes, et cetera, et cetera. So it's sort of it's like a good film script. It comes in three acts. Act one, find the property, price it, find the idea, price it, work out how you're going to make it, attract the money. 
Act two, make sure that the production process goes well, stays on budget, stays on time, and you keep that sort of quality bar up. And then act three is making sure that it finds its audience and, and is effectively released. So that's that's in summary the role of a producer. And Gareth, what is what would you say is the hardest bit about being a producer? Where are the challenges? Um, you never have enough time and you never have enough money. And the reason you say that is that because you should always be challenging boundaries. You should always try to be getting the very best out of the creative piece, the, the creative endeavor that you're undertaking. So I think, you know, what breaks my heart is when I see a lot of money spent on something that people obviously haven't really, really cared about. No one sets out to make a bad film, you know, or make a bad TV program, but you should always be challenging the creative, you know, pushing it as hard as you can to get the very, very best, best piece of work. And I think that's the that's the key challenge is because you are operating at the threshold of almost breaking something to make it better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's really interesting. And I knew you were going to say money. Money always is the tricky bit, isn't it? And like securing securing the money for the the idea that you believe in as well. And there's never enough money to make it as I imagine as a producer, you're always trying to squeeze squeeze the budgets and get as much. Fun. Yeah, I mean, you're basically you're trying to get the maximum value out of the sums that you have raised, and you're always pushing that upper threshold. You know, trying to get the the, the very best. You know, no no one ever wins an award for something coming in on budget. You know, you, there is there is no be, there is no best budget Oscar. Um, you know, but what you are trying to do is to genuinely. I always think that the, my role as a producer is to try and buy the maximum amount of time and thought for all of the creators to deliver their best work, whether that's the director, whether that's the cast, or whether that's the head of head of department. You know, it's my job to try and just give them the most amount of space to be as brilliant as they can. Um, but that comes with limitations. You know, we aren't in the British independent sector. We're typically not working with budgets much more than $25, $30 million. That equates to a given number of days that you're likely to be in production for. Um, and that puts pressure on the set to deliver excellence, you know, in quite short order. Um, so a big part of my my role to, in trying to create that that bubble of brilliance is to make sure that we're not making silly easy mistakes you know it's about being well planned it's being about well thought through it's about giving people the opportunity to go do you know what i just need an extra five minutes to just get that that little idea really perfected but because we haven't lost time on some of the other silly things they've now got that time so it's it's less about policing the actuality it's more about policing the opportunity loss that you know i mean i it's 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 funny you know no matter how much planning it, there's there's an old adage that I got taught as an AD, which is the seven P's, which is perfect pre-production prevents poor principal photography. That's the polite version. There's another version with a different P in there. Um, and that just means get ready, you know, get ready, really think about it in the planning stage, making sure that you've thought everything through, try and work out as many of the eventualities as you possibly can. Because once you're on set and you're turning over, that time is super critical, you know, and you're trying to make sure that you're really getting maximum value, creative value as well as monetary value out of that moment in time. Um, well, Gareth, thank you so much for your time today. It's been absolutely fascinating. And uh, 
and I'm excited to see what your next adventures are, where they lead you. Yeah, I, I can't go public with either the name or who I'm working with on it, but we've got a um, World War II story that we've been developing across the last year that I did a test shoot at the end of last summer that seems to be getting a lot of momentum. So hoping to be announcing in the trades my next film project before the year's out, um, subject to WGA and SAG strikes. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's and it's in the same wheelhouse as the King's Speech. It's a similar sort of story content and uh, an inspiring story. This time of a group of women who who played a big important role in the Second World War. Oh, exciting! Well, I can't wait to hear more about that. Um, so yeah, good luck with the, the preparations and getting that announced. But so before you go, Gareth, I've just got one more question for you, which is. What are the three things that you love about working in the film industry? Um, so firstly, I, I think it's the, the dynamic nature of the industry. It's, it's constantly evolving. It's constantly changing, whether that be the themes and the stories that we want to tell or the technology we get to tell those stories with. So I think it's a dynamic landscape. I think it's it requires an incredible collaboration and a meeting of minds between many people. And as someone that really loves that sort of collegiate approach to to working together that's that's um very nourishing for me um and lastly i think that the really important and interesting thing is that we are bringing about meaningful change in terms of what it means to work in the screen industries we are genuinely becoming a kind of place to work we are becoming more aware of our own biases and those biases that the industry has had for a long time. I think we are encouraging voices from different communities where maybe they've been quietened before. Um, so I, I find it a really interesting and exciting time to be part of the British screen industry at a time of production boom, where we are, you know, genuinely trying to bring around transformative change with how we, how we work and how we, um, how we look after our workforce. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time today, Gareth. It's been amazing chatting to you and, uh, yeah, and good luck with all of your next projects.